0: Good morning, church family. Let's stand and open in worship.
1: hail the power of Jesus' name! Let angels prostrate what i
2: There we go. Welcome. Glad to see you this morning. My name is Matthew. We'd like to welcome you here if you're a visitor. There should be a card right in front of you, in the pew right in front of you. We'd love if you would take that, fill that out, and drop that in the offering basket a little later at the end of our service as you're offering this morning. We would greatly appreciate a little bit of information, a way to reach out to you this week and see if there's anything we can do for you, pray for you would love to have that opportunity. Also, this evening, we are gathering together around fish. We are going to have a fish fry this evening, and uh, so about 5 o'clock here on campus, uh, we will be uh, eating and having fellowship time together, and so we'd like to welcome everyone back uh, this evening, and if you have a dish that you have volunteered to bring, please bring it. It would be nice to not just eat fish and hush puppies. And so just want to, uh, one, encourage you to join us this evening uh, to, uh, to eat, to gather around food and fellowship, and uh, also this week, before we get to that, let's, let's look at our verse. We, we have a few verses this week, this month, uh, from Ephesians that we will be memorizing, uh, chapter 1, 7 and 8, verses 7 and 8, and so let's read them out loud, and then we're going to have a special time of prayer. Uh, So I want to read these out loud first before we pray. So if you would follow with me. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Ephesians 1, 7, and 8. So in him, the him is Christ. God sent his son, God sent Christ Jesus to provide redemption, to pay a debt, to pay our debt, potentially to pay your debt, to pay for your sin before the justice of God. And so I hope you know that to be true, that Jesus has stood in your place. He has taken your sin and he has destroyed it in His sacrifice to bring about your redemption. I hope you know that to be true, that in Him, He has done this, and He has done it for you. And so, school is starting back this week. The beginning of public school is this week, and so I want to call you to, to prayer, that we would pray for our teachers who are returning this week and who will have uh, rooms full of students for our students who are going back uh, to class. Some of you may have started if you're homeschool or in a, in a different school than, than the public schools, but regardless, school is resuming. And let's take a few minutes uh, to to pray and ask you to pray for teachers, ask you to pray for uh, our kids, our students going back to school, and want to welcome you to come forward and pray if you would like to come and kneel and pray or stay where you're at, but just have some time to pray together, and then I will close our time out in prayer, and we'll continue uh, with, uh, with song, okay? Father, I thank you. Thank you for redemption. God, thank you for... Thank you for the sacrifice of Christ that by his blood sin is paid for. And that my sin is paid for because of what he has done. Because of his perfect... Holy life that was given willingly on the cross, and Lord, I, I thank you for this time and this day. Thank you for the gift of of school that you've given to us. That you've given a variety of places and choices and opportunities, and God, that is that is a gift. And Lord, is as our kids return to school, as they start back, whether it is at home or in a uh, private or public school, we ask that, God, you to be with them, you to protect them, you to protect our schools, and our, the students there, and the teachers, and that, God, that you would um, use for, for your glory, you would use them to, to teach and to mature um, our, our kids in knowledge that God, the truth would be taught, that your truth, as you have made all things. So, what is true is what you have done and what you have made. And Lord, we ask that and taught, and that God, you would prepare our children for life you prepare them for adulthood and that god you would use uh, others and the teachers there god to prepare their minds to know you so father would you would you be at work this year use the ministries of this church god to cooperate lord with uh, with the the schools and the the different other aspects of the the growth of our kids that God we would uh, we would be able to represent you well speak well of of you to others that others would come to know you that God we would have opportunity to bring you glory and to love on on the schools here God would you direct us Lord would you also provide for the teachers who are returning who give so much of their lives so much of their time and energy and effort and sacrifice in order to to teach our children that god lord you would help us as parents to be able to uh, love them and help them and support them and to direct them to you that they would see you and they would see uh, your son lord Uh, so god please would you would you provide for them and take care of them Uh, Lord, may they have what they need to do the work set before them, and Lord, help us and give us opportunity to impact them, to love them, and to support them uh, for for the gospel, that you would be known through your people here. And so, Father, we ask that, God, you would help us to be in prayer and to support uh, families and children, and uh, God, Lord, direct us that, Lord, we would be arms and feet, hands and active in, in the different aspects of our community, and that God, you would use us for your glory. You would use us, God, to, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance and to share who you are in to others' lives, that they would come to know you. So Father, we ask that God, you would be with our students, be with our teachers, and Lord, also you would be with us this morning. God, would you speak to us? May we hear from you this morning. Direct us in our attention and our affections that they would belong to you. God, you would be glorified this morning. We thank you and ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.
0: Amen. As we prepare to sing this next song, I want to take a second to read Ephesians 2, one of my favorite chapters, something that... Y'all have already heard me read a bunch, probably, and you'll hear me read a lot more. It says, And although you were dead in your offenses and sins, in which you formerly lived according to this world's present path, according to the ruler of the domain of the air, the ruler of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us also formerly lived out our lives, and the cravings of our flesh. Indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love, which He loved us, even though we were dead in our offenses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And He raised us up together with Him and seated us with Him the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, it is not from works, so that no one can boast. We are his creative work, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand, so we can do them. But God. His work, it's His mercy, which is so much more than our sins. so let's stand as we sing. His mercy.
1: Praise the Lord, His mercy. The cost we stood meet the debt we could never afford in our sins. They Alone, what is our only confidence that our souls to Him belong? Who holds our days within His hands? What comes apart from His command, and what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. And oh, sing hallelujah! Our hope springs eternal. hope in life and death. What truth can call the troubled soul? God is good. God is good. Where is His grace? grave what will we sing Christ he lives Christ he lives and what reward will heaven bring everlasting life with him and we will rise to meet the Lord and sin and death will be And we will feast in endless joy When Christ is ours
0: Lord, thank you. Thank you for that gift. Lord, thank you that your mercy is so much more than all of our sin. God, that you forgive, you are gracious. And now we have hope. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what you have done on the cross. Where you died for our sins. And in the grave where you rose and defeated death. Lord, thank you. Father, as Dr. Ab comes to bring your word, I pray that you will speak through him. God, that your church will hear your words. That we will leave this building changed, better equipped to be your church. God, that we can love others well, that we can serve others well. And that we can be ambassadors for you. Lord, thank you for this time. I pray that this is worshipful time to you. Father, we love you and we praise you. In your name, we pray. Amen. You may be seated.
3: Good morning. I'm glad to see you all today. It's a great day to be here. Um, We had some great news this week, didn't we? You hear about Billy Miller, that he is cancer-free. Praise the Lord. It's great to get that report. It's great to see our pastor emeritus, Joel Faircloth, and his wife, Janet. back There you are. I couldn't find you. I thought you had hid upstairs or something. Why he had to come back today I have to preach is really kind of cruel. But anyway, he is here. I've identified myself in the past as the poor man's Joel Faircloth. So uh, just have to endure with some of us until the Lord appoints our new leader. Um, it's always a great joy to me. To come to our church and here's our church you're my people and i got bad news for you i'm your people and we gather together and we have this great opportunity to open god's word together and learn you know the bible calls the church to pursue sound doctrine and sound doctrine requires a deep and abiding knowledge of god a knowledge that can only be attained through biblical study and prayer And we have to become scriptural people. We really do. Not that we aren't, but we must strive, I think, to be more so. We have to be scriptural if we're going to correctly define God, obey God, worship, and serve the Lord with confidence and stability. And as we examine these truths, I pray that you'll be diligent today to engage with the Bible passages offered. Not a great teacher, but the word of God will teach you everything that you need to know. So try to look through whatever clumsy presentation I give and hear God's word spoken to your heart. God is telling us about himself, and we need that knowledge in order just to live and breathe. I want to pray today in agreement with the Apostle Paul. Paul prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart and my heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power us who believe, Ephesians 1, 17 <clears throat> through 19, that is an incredible prayer, and there's such confidence in that prayer, confidence in the Lord that we serve. So I've uh, studied a lot the last couple of weeks, thinking about this time together, and I have a bit of an obscure passage for you. And, and if this will prove anything, it will prove that there is meaning and substance and value in every word that exists in Scripture. Let's just hope that we can find it. I'm going to read to you from Deuteronomy 22. I know you love when the, when the teacher says Deuteronomy. That's one of your play, favorite places to go, probably. But in verse 9 the Lord set forth the following decree. He said, You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, or all the produce of the seed which you have sown, and the increase of the vineyard will become defiled. And you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. I was sharing this with Karen, and she said, Well, Ab, you look a lot like an ox, but you act like a donkey. I don't really know how to reconcile that piece of the scripture. Now, this passage, I'm sure, seems unrelated to your life. But I assure you, we're going to discover its importance to us individually and as a church. I'm kind of speaking about our church today because our church is in a uh, time of transition. That's obvious. It's a time that we must be steeped in prayer and study in preparation for what God is going to show us in the coming weeks. But to clarify the relevance of this passage, I want to build some background to aid in our understanding and application. So bear with me, because I want to build a bridge back to Deuteronomy that illuminates the meaning. I'm going to go away from Deuteronomy for a little while, but we'll be back. As a beginning, I hope to speak to you today as... Theologians, yeah, theologians, that's a nice title for you. And do not err in your belief that a theologian has to have a seminary degree, although advanced training is an advantage for sure in understanding Scripture. Also know that a theologian does not necessarily hold an office in God's church like pastor or elder. And not only that, the title theologian is not reserved or anointed scholars who teach in seminaries, who write great textbooks and commentaries for the rest of us. Everyone here is a theologian. Paul gave us the foundation for this correct theological and biblical study. In 2 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 15, Paul writes, Be diligent, be diligent, be committed Be determined, be relentless in your preparation, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. That is a very direct and pointed statement that Paul makes. He calls us to be students of the word, to be diligent in our pursuit of information, to be a workman who is not ashamed Accurately handling the word of truth. Now, approved to God, that means that you've been found obedient, submitted, worshipful. Uh, you're sensitive to the spirit and you are pleasing to the Lord. Don't you want to be pleasing to the Lord? What a wonderful thing it would be to have that harmony. Have that the clarity of the Lord each time we go before him. It means that your focus is God-centered humble, and rightly aligned. What's this about not being ashamed? Have you ever been ashamed when you attend a Bible study and you're fearful to speak, you're shy to ask questions because you're lacking the core knowledge of the Bible? Have you ever been passive when an opportunity for evangelism or discipleship comes your way? but you back away because you don't know what the Bible says about this subject or the other. Look, I think you probably have been ashamed. I've been ashamed at times. There are many times I've sat back and wondered with anxiety, do I know what to say to this person? Will I look foolish? Will I look unprepared? Paul is saying there's no place for that. In our preparation... We will be ready for those encounters. These are divine appointments that the Lord is going to bring your way. He's going to bring people into this church in the coming months. You're going to meet people in the community in these coming months. You're going to have a new pastor in these coming months. We must be prepared to discern that calling when it comes. Accurately handling the word of truth. What in the world does that mean? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you read a devotion every morning. I love devotions. You love devotions. I love devotions too. I especially like Spurgeon's devotion morning and evening. Devotions are, are uh, enjoyable. Sometimes they're even convicting. But you really want to get by on that tiny meal every day? But sometimes we mark that square and say, I'm prepared, I'm approved to God, I'm accurately handling the word of truth. Don't, it doesn't mean also that you follow a standardized study of Scripture. And there's some great ones and we need them. I like the McSheen method of Bible study. I like John MacArthur's method of Bible study. And we need those because they help us wade through the difficulty of reading scripture from Genesis through Revelation. We need that help, and God has appointed scholars to help us in that way. But you know, you can do that daily study and get not much out of it. You can read it, but your mind is distracted. Your worship is centered elsewhere. And it could be much like, you know, taking a meal of food and rubbing it on your arm. The food is there, it's available, it's nourishing, it will provide for you, but you're just not taking it in. What being accurately prepared means that we have to seek the most complete and thorough spirit-led understanding and application of Scripture possible. And to do so, we have to abide. We have to stay put, meditate, and pray, sometimes over a single verse. Not just read the chapter that you're assigned that day, but maybe the Lord will park you in one spot. Maybe it's just a single passage. Could be even a single word. And the Lord holds you there. And the Spirit does not let you move until you have Taken in what the Lord is giving you at that time. So it's something we have to be dutiful about and persistent about all the time. Now, what's interesting is that after Paul gives this directive, he follows it with a caution. Because the next word he says after handling the word of truth rightly, he says, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Now, you know what worldly and empty chatter is, I bet. I've engaged in it, where you're speculating on other notions, science, psychology, humanism, what some uh, famous person said about God or about the Bible. And we have these conversations and they go on sometimes endlessly and we never get to scripture. I've been to Bible studies that are that way. But these, this focus on personal feelings and themes that are outside of scripture, the Bible says, leads to further ungodliness. It does not edify. It does not promote, build up. In fact, it undermines the word because sometimes we'd rather hear what somebody else said than read what God has to say because the God of scripture doesn't look like us sometimes we want a God who looks more like we look thinks the way we think wants the things that we want But that's not where scripture will take us and ungodliness Paul said spreads like gangrene Do you know what gangrene is some nasty stuff. Gangrene is a rapidly spreading disease marked by the decay and decompensation of the flesh due to the loss of blood flow. So, worldly and empty chatter generates a rapidly spreading death in our hearts. And it can be a death that can overtake your marriage and your family, and your church. We have to be very careful not to let that be our food, our sustenance, that we rely on these types of conversations and these extra-biblical readings that we do. it's good to read other things. I especially like biographies of the old saints. I like the Puritans. And I like to read about what different preachers' lives were like. And, And there certainly are books in theology and study that will grow us and help us, but they have to be secondary, a distant in a distant secondary position to Scripture. Your reading of Scripture should interpret those other books. Those other books should not interpret Scripture. So what is theology? Well, I'll tell you if you're interested. It's just really simple to explain. Even I figured it out. The term comes from the word theos, which is the Greek word for God. And the ology is taken from the Greek word logos, which means word. So the term theology literally means words about God or the study of God. What are the words you're going to read about God but his word? God proclaims his own testimony page after page of scripture. It never changes. It doesn't modify. We have to be theological. We have to be studious because our study and knowledge of God is central to the gospel and is foundational in all matters of life and godliness. If We don't know who the God of Scripture is. We don't know who we are. We don't understand what the gospel is built upon. We don't understand things like substitutionary atonement, regeneration. I don't know if we even understand salvation if we don't understand the God of Scripture. Remember, guys, even the atheist is a theologian. Because even the atheist has wondered about, considered, talked about, maybe even read about, God, through some source, maybe even read parts of the Bible, but his study is incompatible with biblical truth, and therefore his conclusions are undermined by false instruction, personal motives. Now, the correct study of God should lead to sound doctrine. That's mostly what we're talking about today. Doctrine refers to a belief or set of beliefs that we have concerning God. It's a fixed position that we arrive at through the study of God's word. Ideally, doctrine should be taught in a church through preaching and teaching, worship, discipleship, fellowship, counseling. Everything in the church should be consistently the same. That is based upon God-centered study of the word. And you hear the same thing from the pulpit that you hear from the worship leader that you hear in Bible study and discipleship. The same message rings through because the Bible only has one truth. Well, there are multiple truths, but I mean in each passage, there's only one meaning. You and I can have a different opinion about what a verse says, But all that means is that one of us is right, one of us is wrong, or we're both wrong. But you both cannot be right. If you say, well, the word says this to me. Well, really? It says something else entirely to me. Listen, that's swapping ignorance, people. We should go together with that person with whom we are in disagreement and pursue the actual truth of that scripture what is it saying in its fullest and most foundational way if we're not careful these strong notions become just as fixed and just as accepted as those advanced by gospel teaching gospel centered churches and we become, we can become people of tradition ritual and routine practicing religion rather than theology and sound doctrine. I've consulted with a number of churches throughout the country, different times, different problems that they're having, and, and I consulted with this church in Florida once, and I was giving my summary of my consultation to the church, and in the middle, this lady stands up right while I'm talking, and she said, Mr., that's not a good thing when they begin with Mr., We don't care what the Bible says. We are Southern Baptist. Another time I consulted with a group of elders. I tried to show them where they were biblically in error. And the chief elder said to me, I want our church to be biblical. I said, amen. He said, but not if it contradicts the bylaws. Now, you would never say that. You would never think that. But in case you find somebody who does, you must be prepared to show them biblically. You don't want to just take up a fleshly argument with somebody that they're wrong about something. You want to be able to show them what God has taught about this something, whatever it may be. You need to be able to articulate Scripture, turn the page, show them rather than using terminology and words that come from some other source that we think are especially intelligent and useful, these arguments. Why is all this important? Well, it's important because unity, we need unity, don't we? Can occur only within the context of sound doctrine. You cannot be unified over a blended Truth. Unity of study, belief, and purpose must grow out of systematic order and truth. And it, Because in time, oh well, multiple and fragmented definitions of God, what do they lead to? They lead to shifting doctrine. And they eventually lead to chaos. Something's going to break. Somebody's going to leave the church. Family's going to... To feel that they're not ministered to, staff, pastor, elders are going to be attacked and hurt. Our doctrine matters people. When we become hardened and devoted to our position, we can become to the place that the word no longer convicts. These other sources of information, they harden our hearts to what the word actually says, because the word is not as al- always as palatable and pleasing as what the world says. Now, sound doctrine is declining in God's church. These, these are perilous times. Recent research indicates that only 6% of Americans embrace a biblical worldview. 6%. That means that they believe the Bible to be true. They believe it's inerrant, that it's sufficient. And that the directives of the Bible are useful for life and godliness. But what's more disturbing? Only 19% of people who profess to be born-again Christians embrace a biblical worldview. Now look, we have to be cautious about Christian research because there's no way of knowing the true spiritual condition of that person who says, I'm born again, but I don't believe the Bible. But here's one thing that's clear. The general movement of the church is clearly away from biblical integrity, and there's a growing receptivity to all of this extra-biblical humanistic explanations of God and his glorious doctrines. If you've been around the Baptist church for a long time, and some of you have, because your hair is white, you've seen the shift. They fought over this shift back in the 70s when Pastor Joel was just a young buck. I'm sure he was in the fight. And at that time, the church won the battle against liberalism that tried to take over our church. But I think there's a battle yet to come. Where are you going to stand? And how are you going to articulate where you stand but that you are a sound theologian with correct doctrine? What is the application to our little church? We're searching for new leadership and we're watching for God's appointed pastor. We must be a congregation committed to sound biblical study and its resulting truth. How else can we recognize the man God has ordained for this role? If you're not biblical, how are, you going to, how are you going to identify a biblical preacher? And if you're chaotic and you believe anything and everything and you try to have peace with one another and just accept that your view is different than my view on major, important, central issues of Scripture, you want a preacher that ascribes to that philosophy? It matters who we are because who we are will define the pastor that we get. The Bible suggests that the Lord gives us the leaders we want. You have to be very careful. Do you want a biblical leader, a sound expositional preacher who teaches you the word verse by verse and does not vary? to one side or the other, or do you want someone who endorses everyone's opinion? That's why it matters. And can you honestly report today, you don't have to answer me, you don't answer to me, but can you honestly report that your knowledge of God's character came through biblical study? I didn't really read the, I was born again at 17, but I really didn't read scripture till I was in my thirties. And I don't know what I thought in those ten years or more before I read the word. I was going on what Brother Bob said, my preacher, or what some preacher back in my childhood might have said, or or some little something I read somewhere that said this or that about God. I guess those were my sources of wisdom. When I began to read scripture, I was shocked. Remember Josiah when they found the, the, the God's law buried in the rubble of the temple? He was so grieved, he ripped his clothes and he called like an assembly and he read the word in the hearing of all. And they were grieved. Because they didn't know what they did not know. And so for all those years, I was serving a God of my imagination. I don't doubt that my conversion was true, but my knowledge of God was minuscule. So as a body of believers, are we collectively worshiping the one true God or are we submitting our hearts to multiple false gods lacking power and truth? Wait a minute, did Ab just call me an idolater? No, but the Bible did. We are prone to affections that are not of God. John Calvin said that the human heart is a factory, is an idle factory. We make them up as we go along to answer our cravings. And we would rather have the relief of that craving than the transformation that God brings. We'd rather get answered today then watch for in faith the teaching of the Lord playing out in our lives. Paul gave this warning. You know this warning. You know it. I'm just here to repeat it. He said the time will come when they, us, will not endure sound doctrine. You won't have it anymore. Somebody preaches the Bible verse by verse, the church will not stand for it but wanting to have their ears tickled have their own needs and desires answered desires answered they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths it's not true it's a lie partial truths really don't exist I recognize there are multiple ways of examining God, common throughout history and present today, but correct theological study and development of sound doctrine must grow out of the study of Scripture alone. I meet some young, encouraging Christians now and then, and they're talking about this teacher and that teacher and this book and the other book. I said, read the Bible first, and then let's read what that guy has to say. Our study must be God-centered and therefore Christ-centered. There's no division in the Godhead, is there? And who is our teacher but the Holy Spirit? I love in uh, Matthew 16, when Peter correctly identifies the Lord, he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but only my Father who is in heaven. That's the revelation you want. That's the revelation we need. Not revealed by man's opinion, but by God himself through the Holy Spirit as he inspires and teaches us the true root meaning of every passage of the Bible. Too often we search the scriptures looking for answers for me. I'm focused on me. In doing so, again, we settle for relief, not transformation. You know this one too. I'm just repeating the Lord. Romans twelve two, Paul wrote, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Sometimes the passages we know and repeat, know so well and repeat so often have the least impact with us. I'm counseling a guy right now in another part of the country. Every time I read the word to him, he says, I know, I know that, I know that, I know that. But his life looks dramatically different than what he says he knows. Like the rich young ruler, oh, all that, I've done all that. One thing you lack. Look, God's word is divine. What does that mean? It means it comes from God himself. It is not a human document. All scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. Now, if you decide in your great... Mind that scripture is not totally reliable, that it's a good book of moral reasoning, but it's not really God's word. I mean, God didn't write it himself, no, he used human instruments to transcribe what he gave them to write. But if you don't believe the Bible comes from God directly to you, you're already off the boat. So, so, And you better pay attention, we all better pay attention to what God himself says about the Word of God. When God through Paul says that all Scripture is inspired by God, you might want to take notice of that. God does not lie. God's word is inerrant. What does that mean? It means it has no error in its original form. King David wrote that the law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. Restoring the soul. And one last thing. God's word is infallible. It is incapable of error. Now or in the future. Over the course of time and eternity, the Bible is and always will be true. And there are no future revelations coming. There's no cultural shift. that's going to change the Bible. Earthly circumstances don't change the Bible. Nothing can up, upend the Bible's veracity. The psalmist wrote, the counsel of the Lord stands how long? Forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. In contrast, the humanistic and social influences have have beguiled the church many have drifted away from a biblically informed God-centered theology to one that is emotional, experiential, and man-centered. And under the banners of intellectualism and science, we give a nod to Scripture while elevating the imaginations of the human heart and mind. Paul wrote about this version of theology in Romans 1. And in verse 21, he says, For even though they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile, futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling things. Believe it or not, we're finally back to Deuteronomy 22. Because I know you're wondering about what we're going to do with that ox and donkey. I'll read it one more time quickly. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, or all the produce of the seed which you have sown and in the increase of the vineyard will become defiled and you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. It's a curious passage, it really is. But the application of this passage, I believe, is far-reaching. Every instruction of the Lord, I'll say again, is an expression of his character. And no matter the audience or the context or subject, God is teaching us about himself. So what is he teaching us in this passage? He's conveying a message of purity, holiness, and separateness. As an expression of himself and as a call to God's people. And God draws a division of the clean from the unclean and warns us of the spiritual danger of merging what is pure with what is defiled. Some history may be helpful here. The seeding of the soil with diverse seeds was a common practice in some of the surrounding pagan nations. This commingling of seed was part of their fertility rites in connection with the worship of false gods. So is it literally about the field, not defiling the field with disharmonious seeds? Yes, it is. There's a pragmatic element to God's teaching. But he's also saying, let's not take up the practices or replicate the activity of pagans, people who have false gods, God's elect are a distinguished people. It says that in uh, Exodus 33. Go read that sometime. That's a great passage. Throughout biblical history and still today, the people of God have been warned of the dangers of cultural assimilation, which often leads to the worship of false gods. What's loudest today is social justice, right? Political position, All kinds of things that the Bible addresses, but in a very different way. We've got to be very careful not to take those things up as our idols. Before entering the promised land, God gave this direction through Moses. He said, do not forget the Lord. You're heading over into this great territory. I'm giving it to you. It was my promise to you. And you're gonna. It's, it's filled with all of these marvelous things that you did not create. I'm giving them to you. But as you go in and partake of my bounty, do not forget the Lord. Sometimes Christians do better in times of deficit than abundance. But guess what? I think the deficit is coming. I don't know, but I mean. Things are a little rocky around America right now. Would, would the Lord permit that? Would he design that to awaken his church? I don't know. But he said, do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God. And you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow the God's you shall not follow other gods, any of the gods, of the people who surround you. A God's instruction about the ox and donkey, kind of simple. The ox was a clean animal. The donkey was an unclean animal in God's law. Their natures and temperaments were oppositional one to another. And obviously this would create pragmatic problems when you're trying to plow a field. But if you want to see the unity of Old Testament and New, look to the Apostle Paul. He borrowed from this imagery and gave us the following New Testament instruction in 2 Corinthians 6. You know this one too. Do not be bound or yoked together with unbelievers and a donkey. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness, therefore come out from their midst and be separate says the Lord and do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. So the unity of God's character is displayed in this Seemingly simple Old Testament verse about seeds and farm animals, and later echoed in Paul's proclamation. But remember, you're God's people, and you therefore are a separated people. Two types of sanctification. The first comes when you're converted, you're set apart from the world, you're set apart as God's own child. The second aspect of sanctification has to do with our ongoing growth and development as Christians growing in our walk of obedience which further distinguishes us from the world a growing Christian should look less and less like the world more and more like Christ can you say that? we have to guard our hearts everything begins with you You're influencing somebody. You're a husband, you're influencing a wife. A wife's influencing her husband. You both are influencing your children. You have friends and extended family, and you have co-workers and employees and employers, and you have the church to whom we are accountable to guide, lead, help, serve, suffer alongside one another. So each of us must be accountable for our own preparation and we must be accountable for any other seeds we're borrowing that undermine our integrity before the Lord. In this world, there are only two places to feed. There is the perfect and bountiful vine of Christ. Right? Jesus said, I am the living bread that comes out of, comes down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus told his disciples, he said, that my, uh, my, uh, my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And they said, Lord, this is a hard saying. Where are you concern, consuming truth? feed at the vine, or we feed on the bitter, decaying root of the world that is passing away. God said through the prophet Isaiah, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to you, cursed are you. you're running a PowerPoint, I'm leaving it at this point. Congratulations, you carried me a long way. But PowerPoint, I'm sure, is of the devil, and I've never yet completed one with integrity. But i got to hurry. Your, anim- <clears throat> your enemy, Satan, you remember about him, right? You believe he's true, he actually exists, that he walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He hates you. He's not just somebody doesn't like you, thinks you're not funny, doesn't want to have dinner with you. He hates you. He'd kill you if he could. He would take your salvation if he could. But he also is a practicing theologian. He offers a counterfeit version of truth that has been adopted by millions. Because his message is more palatable to the wayward human heart. But remember the Lord's warning. What did the Lord say about Satan? He said he was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Stark contrast between God's description of his own character the character of the evil one. Seems like we'd be able to identify that when it appears. But he is an excellent counterfeiter. And he gives theological points that sound very much correct. They seem to, to go right along with scripture for a pretty long distance and then they suddenly at the end take a left turn and they leave you without the Lord. I think this is on the PowerPoint If we might actually end up there again. <clears throat> the prophet Isaiah wrote for, the rain, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me, what? Empty, void. It will not return without accomplishing what I desire and and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. the word, totally reliable. Now, sometimes we see what it accomplishes and we say, well, that's not what I expected. But it accomplishes, it says, the matter for which it was sent. We sometimes don't know the purpose of God and why he sent the word and why he accomplished his message the way he does. I submit to you that our Farming methods of sowing and reaping have a big impact in our lives. In fact, Scripture demonstrates that our adultery with the world and the idolatry of our hearts explain the disunity and suffering within the modern church. In Isaiah 17, beginning in verse 10, excuse me just a moment, Through the prophet, the Lord said, you have forgotten the God of your salvation. Remember what he told Israel before they went into the promised land? Don't forget the Lord. You, You have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, you plant delightful plants. What's a delightful plant? It's a plant that is seeded by that undefiled seed of God, the word of God. It's delightful to the Lord. It's pleasing to the Lord. It's agreeable with the Lord. You plant delightful plants and you set them with vine slips of a strange God. What does that mean? What's a vine slip? Do anybody know? That's where you leave your natural territory and you go into another place and you take a cutting off of a plant that's natural over there but not natural in your garden. And you bring it home. And you plant it next to this plant that grew from an unblemished seed. The commingling of plants that is unnatural. And then the day that you plant it, you carefully fence it in. You protect it. You guard it. You hide it. And in the morning, you bring your seed to blossom. But listen up. But the harvest will be a heap. The harvest will be a heap in a day of sickliness and incurable pain. That's what this hybrid faith gets us. This blending of seed that does not have fellowship with each other. Now, this foolishness that arises from that circumstance. It fills our hearts and minds. Paul wrote in Titus 1, he said, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. So if I have a defilement that I've ingested into my heart, nothing is pure. My discernment is cloudy. I look out from My perspective, and I don't see things rightly or clearly. I don't see them as God sees them because nothing is pure. he says even their mind and conscience become defiled. So we begin to think wrongly about God, about righteousness, about all matters of Scripture. And even our conscience, our sense of right and wrong, gets flipped upside down. It's a dangerous thing to bring in what does not belong. Paul wrote that a little leaven, what? Leavens the whole lump of dough, Galatians 5, 9. But listen, that's also true with correct doctrine. That scripture can go to the negative or the positive. You leaven the church with correct teaching and it also will spread throughout the entire lump. Your whole heart, your whole family your whole church but will you seed that truth will you be the one to bring that truth to bear will you speak as scriptural people Paul added but as for you speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine one last thing it's really not the last thing but we're going to pretend like it is that's really not the end of the story There's one more consequence that the Lord teaches us about that rises out of this ungodly merger of seed. In Hosea, another place you probably like to read very often, the Bible states they sow the wind. My people, my rebellious people, they sow the wind. They seed what is in the wind. nothing in the wind but wind. It's foolishness, it's incorrect doctrine, it's incorrect reasoning about the character of God. It's whatever is a lie, they sow the wind and they will reap a whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it yields no grain. Should it yield, strangers would swallow it up. Hosea 8, 7. You see, in sowing the wind, incorrect doctrine, We don't just get wind. We tolerate a little bit of wind. You get a whirlwind. You get a category 5 hurricane. Full-blown tornado. Because the chaos will overtake your heart, your mind, and so forth. So the seeds and sources of information that seem so wise and so reasonable, the seeds that seem to enhance the vineyard, and cause no harm, the concessions and the sin that no longer bother us because our hearts are hard will get ready because a storm is coming. The Lord disciplines those he loves. And if you're without discipline, you are illegitimate. So the Lord will not stand for his name to be demeaned. He will not stand for his gospel to be misrepresented Even though you can't see the wind, you can see the damage it leaves behind. So we have to know that we're we're extremely accountable for how we communicate God's truth. And we can't communicate it if we don't believe it. Paul was very clear. You know this one too, Galatians 6, 7. I'm only pulling out the greatest hits. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. God is not mocked. You don't see yourself as a scoffer or or mocker, do you? But when we prize this information over God's truth, we are mocking God. For whatever a man sows, this he also will reap. This is the unchanging economic system of God's kingdom. You cannot. Look, I'm from Robertsdale. I'm a very smart farmer, which which is a lie. But I did learn that you cannot plant corn and expect potatoes to come up, right? So you can't sow unbiblical reasoning into your heart and expect those that you influence to bear a harvest of sound doctrine. What goes into the soil will always determine and dictate the quality of the harvest. Peter wrote, you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. Oh, you have been born again through the enduring word of God. Hmm. So there's a connection between God's word and our salvation. How does a person become born again if they don't hear God's word? How can they know who they're responding to? If God is drawing them, how would they know that it's God, but they see it in the word? They see the grandeur and majesty of God and the depravity of their own lowly state. How can they, not, how can they come to the Lord but that that gulf is presented in plain language? You can make a humanistic appeal of the gospel. sounds like this. You can go to heaven or hell. You don't want to go to dirty old nasty hell, do you? It's terrible. Don't you want to be with God for eternity? Oh, yes. Well, Say this prayer and you won't have to go to hell. That appeals to the desire of my heart, but there's nothing salvific about it. Now, I should correct that because if God chooses to save that person, Under that poor tutelage, that's entirely up to God, and he probably has done that many millions of times. But I don't want to be the guy giving the wrong word. Neither should you desire to be in that position. Better to articulate and demonstrate and have people read and hear the word of God through which the Holy Spirit works. He convicts the world of what? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. He will show us all the truth, right? He will guide us to that narrow gate. But the word has to be ministered for that to occur. Maybe sometime I'll get another chance to talk, probably not. But if I do, like Luna Ravenhill used to say, I preach a lot of places once. But I might tell you the rest of what I have on this PowerPoint. But see, it all really comes to one place. You must make an honest survey of your heart today. You know how you came to know about God you know what resources you held in high regard. Like I meet with people as a counselor. I meet with people all the time who I believe are born again, but they do not know God. Not in the, not in the sense of knowing the biblical God. And their theology is horrible. They say things to me like, my God, oh, that's a, that's a bad start to begin with. You're God's possession. He ain't your possession. But my God does not want me to be unhappy. God wants to give me the desires of my heart. I love it when people quote half of a passage of Scripture. Because what does that Scripture say in full? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I hear people say, uh, I know that's what the Bible says, but God told me something else. When did he tell you that? I was in the shower, and it just came over me like I heard this voice, and and I know God doesn't doesn't want me to stay with this man or this woman. He's given me peace to leave my marriage, even though there's no biblical grounds. And they smile at you because they have built themselves a golden calf. A God that they can control and manipulate who has no power, authority, or sovereignty in their lives. And they're going to go with that guy, not this guy. Some of my counselees, they work 50, 60, 70 hours a week. They leave their children in the education and care of other people so that they can give them the best that money can buy. Hmm. Some people tell me God is love and he would never send anybody to hell. I can do as I want, but he won't send me to hell. And they smile. They're under a the delusion because they don't know the God of Scripture. Paul said, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Christians should have greater fear of God than unbelievers because unbelievers don't know anything, they're just ignorant totally and completely. They've not been drawn, they've not confessed, they've not repented, they do not belong to the Lord, but you do. And you had better look to this God that you worship and see how dramatically different he is than you. Because if we forget who we are and if we forget what has been done for us, we will surely become prideful puffed up, self-assured, and we will select our own point of worship. So the total of my remaining pages is this. We must repent. Me too, me too. We, church, we must repent because all of us have shadings of this problem. And guess what? You're no better off if you have a 20% shading and somebody else has a 40%. You're just as guilty. You can't compare your vineyard to your neighbor's next door. It does no good to contrast your spiritual standing with another individual. The only standard that matters is God's standard. And when I look to the scripture, I see the idolatrous affections of my heart. I see the foolishness of my thinking. I see the pride that wells up and insulates me from obeying God. Puts me in denial and keeps me from realizing who he really is and who I'm responding to. Hebrews 4 says that all creatures are laid bare before him to whom we have to have to do or to before him to whom we give an account church will we be perfect i don't think that's going to happen and will you be a perfect theologian no but we can be in agreement And sound doctrine, and we can be in agreement about where the holes in our knowledge lie and how do we as a church answer those deficits? How do we encourage and help one another study? There's a great preacher and teacher. um, His students used to come to him, uh, Martin Lloyd Jones, and they would be frustrated with the, the, the other students who had really terrible theology. And they would kind of make fun of them and complain about them. Uh, The good doctor said to them Well, here's what you do you love them and you teach them. Don't condemn them, don't set yourself in a prideful heart. Go teach them. So, as a church, we should see where our vulnerabilities lie and where we have misplaced our thought and mind and devotion. And so for that, we all must think about this from that perspective. Do you have godly sorrow? For the aspects of the biblical God that you ignore or minimize? See, Sometimes we have sorrow only because it caused us a consequence. Do you have godly sorrow? Do you recognize what an offense we are at times before holiness? If we could see that, we'd be praying a lot more and we'd be begging the Spirit to teach us and we would be in the Word faithfully, stopping and starting as the Spirit directs and absorbing the fullness of God's truth. We've had a good teacher for 16 years who proclaimed God's word clearly and precisely. And so we must make certain that as we go forward that we're in condition such that God would place another powerful leader in our midst. I pray that that would be your concern today and I pray that if there is need for repentance that you'll consider that before you even leave this building. Maybe some of you, if you heard some of these words of God today, you may wonder, am I born again? Do I belong to the Lord? We can talk about that. Or maybe you just need to pray collectively or individually about your own condition knowing that you belong to Christ yet you're lacking in the knowledge and fullness of what he provides so before i leave and let the music play i'm going to pray with you and then we'll close out for today father god we we do stand amazed Lord, when we stop long enough to stare into your word and we see the fullness of your character revealed, I'm sure that even even now we can only understand you to the very smallest degree. But God, help us to pursue you. Help our hearts to yearn for you and for the righteousness that you call us toward Father but for your grace we would be lost unsalvageable unredeemable there would be nothing that we could do we were dead in our sins and trespasses but for God and God we are subject to our own ignorance and our the law of sin that still has life in us. We pray, God, that you would rescue us again from our own folly and show us the fullness of your kind and grateful and powerful nature. You're so gracious, Lord, and we are so fallen and frail. Lift us today by your great authority. And show us how we should live. and We ask you these things Lord with great thanks. And great earnestness that you give us answer Lord as we know you will. And we honor you God this day. In the name of our Savior the Lord Jesus Christ.